0: Well, welcome back to the Pastor Talk Podcast. We are thrilled that you are joining us once again as we continue our journey through the Enneagram. We are uh, continuing in this discussion looking at how the Enneagram serves as a guide for us as we seek to learn more about ourselves and grow into the kind of people who God created us to be. And we're excited to look at that from a different vantage here today. A little
1: bit different in that so far we've really been talking about the enneagram as a self-assessment tool and we will continue to do that today but today we want to think a little bit about how the enneagram can help us with a framework in our exterior relationships. so not just as we grow in the interior in the inside but how is it that the enneagram can be helpful in our relationships with other people and there's some caution here, and I, I think we need to preface some of this discussion, Michael, by saying the Enneagram is first and foremost a self-help tool. The idea really is that it's a, a mirror, not a lens. However, under with the right guidance, I do think the Enneagram can be helpful to help us evaluate relationships, to help us understand, perhaps, some other people, certainly at least to understand some of the nuances of relating to different people. But I think the caution is we have to be careful that we don't think of the Enneagram as something we point toward others.
0: Yeah, we've mentioned that before in these conversations, and I think today will in some ways be a more sustained version of that conversation. But I find these two images helpful, Clint, the image of Enneagram as mirror and Enneagram as map. The mirror for me is that image that the Enneagram shows us something about ourselves that we might not have seen otherwise. It gives us a advantage into our soul, which then gives us a real choice. It gives us real agency at what we'll do with that knowledge. And the map is this image that the Enneagram gives you some of those high points that you can use as markers on your journey of faith. It it can tell you a little bit about what it looks like when you're unhealthy, it can tell you a little bit about what it would look like for you to be healthy, and the Enneagram then provides this sort of constructive path forward. And I think our conversation today doesn't fit neatly in either of those categories. It's not necessarily all about self-awareness, it's not necessarily about how it shows us a path forward, and in that I think it's tricky because I think as you've been going through this study with us, I suspect that all of us at some point or another has said to a family member or loved one, what number do you think blank is. What do you think their number is? And then we generally probably say that with a little bit of a snide smile, like, yeah, because they're definitely the number that annoys me. And if that's true, we're we're going into territory where the Enneagram isn't made to help us.
1: Yeah, I think one of the temptations as we grow into the Enneagram, as we begin to get comfortable with some of the language and familiar with some of the ideas, is the temptation to use the Enneagram types as a kind of label. And generally, let's just be honest, generally when we do that, it's not a compliment. We, we're, we're identifying some of those negative traits of a type and we're sticking them on someone else. And, you know, I, I just see a lot of people do that. Well, I talk to my, I talk to my mom or I talk to my dad They've got to be a five because they do this. Or, you know, and I think it's helpful to remember in those moments that the Enneagram really is not about other people. It's about an opportunity to look at ourselves. However, on the other side of that, Michael, I, I do think that as we understand the typologies, particularly as we understand the premise that people are wired differently, they come from different places, they naturally ask different questions and have different motivations. The Enneagram can be helpful in guiding some of our relationships and helping us in, in situations, particularly where our subconscious may be involved and if we can explore that. But I do think we have to be careful not to use the Enneagram as some, some kind of club, some kind of weapon. Um, it, it is not the, the point is not to pigeonhole people so that we can sort of dismiss them by understanding them. The goal is to ask the questions behind the questions, as we've said all along. And why is it that I really mesh with this person? Or, or why is it that this person and I don't seem to get along? Or why do I find myself so angry in these moments with these people? And I think that's where the Enneagram can be pretty
0: helpful. The Enneagram, for sure, has implications for how we relate to others. And we're going to get into that later in this conversation. Before we get there, though, I do want to say sort of one thing. This maybe is a helpful framework, I hope it is, to sort of evaluate in what context you're using the Enneagram and whether that's a helpful usage or not and I think this is the question, as I'm looking at this person right now, and I'm thinking about them with the Enneagram, am I thinking about them and putting a label on them, or am I looking at them and is the Enneagram helping me be empathetic with them? Mm -hmm. Because the history of the Enneagram is that it was used as a tool by spiritual leaders to help identify rather to help um, different disciples identify their own number and the strengths and weaknesses of it so that they could help them in spiritual direction. They could help them grow in their discipleship. The ideogram is a great tool if it's a tool rooted in empathy. If you can recognize, oh, you know this person who bugs the daylights out of me. The reason that they bug me is because they do this thing and you know why they do this thing probably because this is the baggage that they carry around and i know that baggage i have my own i know what that feels like the enneagram can actually open windows of empathy for us that could break down some walls that maybe have stood the test of time it it is possibly an invitation for us to get ourselves in someone else's shoes in a way that we couldn't have before but to your point clint when we look at someone and say They've got to be a four because fours annoy the daylights out of me and that person's annoying. Now we've not seen them as full people. We've not empathized with who they are and what struggles they are. We're not taking either their sins or their strength seriously. And in doing that, we're cutting against the Enneagram. And quite frankly, the enneagram's not going to be helpful anymore.
1: Yeah, I think to whatever extent we would try to use the Enneagram to dismiss people to label people, to, to judge people or, or categorize people so that we could then move on from them. In other words, in, in any moment that we tried to use the Enneagram to bring someone else down and move ourselves up, we would clearly be beyond the bounds of what it offered us. And, and at that point, the Enneagram it's not helpful because it's no longer a tool. We're using it as a, as a weapon to use that kind of language. And that's it's not its intention. It's not its design. And it's certainly not where it offers us an opportunity to grow.
0: Yeah, the moment that we find ourselves giving into that, we have found ourselves operating in an unhealthy place.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: But that being said, and, and to your point, Clint, the Enneagram does serve as a tool that can be useful as we think about our relationships with those closest to us and those who we work with most often. And so let's take a look a little bit at how that works out. Yeah,
1: so I think everybody has had this experience, right? You, you meet somebody, you don't know them well, you've been around them a fairly short time, and almost immediately, you either find yourself kind of drawn to them thinking, I, I really like this person. There's a sense of admiration, of connection. Or on the other hand, almost instantly you find yourself thinking, boy, I, this person rubs me the wrong way. I, I don't. We're not going to be friends. This isn't, a, this isn't a good fit. And, you know, realistically we can do some of that based on our life experience. But we have to, if we're honest, Michael, admit that most of that has far more to do with us than it does with that person in in psychology that's called transference when i take my prior experiences and i presume that i can know something about someone because of who they remind me of or because i've think i've known you know people quote like them before and the transference psychologically speaking is almost always a barrier to real, actual relationship.
0: Maybe this is just another way of rephrasing that, Clint, but human minds are meaning-making machines. We're always looking to create meaning out of the discordant things that surround us. And so that applies with people. We, We put people in groups, not necessarily because we are trying to limit people, but because simply in trying to make sense of the world in which we live. Oh, there's these kind of people who like these kind of cars. Or there's these kind of people who like this kind of food. And that extends all the way out to some of the negative typings that we do. We're just trying to find order amidst all of these pluralities. And the problem is, the more categories you put people in, the less they look like the creature created and loved by God that they actually are.
1: Yeah, and the danger is that you don't really know them at all. You know your projection of them. And we all do this, and if you want an example of it, just think of a name that you wouldn't want your child or grandchild to have. We, we all have, If if you've ever gone through that experience of trying to name a child, inevitably it comes up that your spouse or somebody says, what about the name Kim? And you say, no, I had a Kim, I knew a Kim that was a student or a Kim that was in middle school with me, who teased me, and, and you carry this. Now, th- that has logically no bearing on anything, except there's this idea that somehow that name is attributed to those negative experiences we had, and we would never use that name for someone we cared about or loved. And that's a h- 100% irrational but we all function at that level at some point. And I think what the Enneagram offers us is, t- to some extent, a way past it, but maybe at least at the lowest level, it offers us the opportunity to realize that we do that.
0: Exactly, and we always live, and we've talked about this before, we live with these reality distortion goggles in which we give our credit and we assume that other people are idiots. And fundamentally, we have to humbly come to the Enneagram to recognize that we're all at different stages of the journey. And that's why I like the Enneagram, Clint, is that the Enneagram never lets you put someone in a solid, fast, stone base foundation. The Enneagram is going to demand that you recognize that everybody's in a fluid journey. They might be healthy right now, they might be unhealthy right now, but we're all going in this larger trajectory. We have a larger arc to our lives. And because of that, I think, it's, if we're willing to come to the Enneagram honestly and humbly, it invites us then to see people where they're at on their arc right now. In other words, they're, they're not just someone who's made poor choices or someone who's annoyed you or somebody whose personality conflicts with yours. They're someone who continues to have agency in their life. They're someone who God continues to love. And so we're called then to find ways to empathetically connect with them.
1: Yeah, and let's start off, Michael, in the, in the big picture. If you'll remember back a while ago in our conversation about the Enneagram, we've talked about the, the triads, the, the heart the gut, and the mind. And I think those three distinctives can be helpful in that if you can imagine one, a, a person from one type or group talking to another person. And so when I did my CPE to prepare for ordination, we would have these sessions with our supervisor and we'd have to you know, talk about some case and the idea was how it made us feel. And, and my phraseology was always, well, I think. And, and he would stop me every time. And he would say, I don't care how you think. I want to know what you feel. And I'd say, what? And he said, you said, I think. So then I'd have to start the sentence over again and say, I feel. Instead of, I think this is what I was doing. I feel like this is, you know. And, and it was that language. And I remember kind of thinking, what in the heck is he talking about? But, but if you think that through, you, you can see how that, where you start from, the heart, the mind, or the gut, can have a big impact. If, if you have a five talking to an eight, the, the five is saying, I, I've, I've done all the research and I think, and they, they mean that, I, I make decisions from the extension of my thoughts, and I think this is what we should do. And you have the, the eight saying, or the nine, the one, you you have the gut person saying, no, my instincts tell me that, yes, all the data says this, but we should go. Those people aren't going to make sense to each other, at least not initially. They, they're coming from different places. And then you throw the heart person is who, in who just says, well, I just, I just worry about how people are going to feel if we do that. And, and they, it, it is helpful, I think, to understand that people come from radically different places before the evaluation even starts, before the thing that you're trying to figure out or decide or, or solve. Long before then, people are getting to that conclusion from a very different starting point. And and we can easily miss one another in the assumption that everyone sees it the way that I do.
0: Right, and that's also an opportunity. Yeah. So I'm very much a beginner in the Enneagram and and still learning my way into this, but I've been trying to learn what I can from it. And one of my friends is, uh, is actually a five and is a thinking person. And some conversations since learning about the Enneagram We've been talking and I've recognized how often this friend talks to me about what he's thinking about, about what he's processing. And there was one conversation where a decision needed made. And he said, he laid out all of the data and said, so what what do you think about it? And it triggered in my mind for the first time there is no way in a million years I think about this as deeply as this guy's already thought about it. He's thought about it from the left and from the right. I can't contribute to that. This has been well thought through. I can't contribute to that, but I can contribute a different vantage. And so I tried to offer that. I didn't try to um, live in his home base because that base was well covered. Mm -hmm. I tried to to offer a, a different perspective. And I think that's maybe one baby step forward here is to recognize that there is some helpful translating that you can do. When you recognize, okay, my sweet spot's not the gut. I, I, I don't intuitively have gifts there, but I do have gifts in uh, the heart. Well, then that's an invitation for us to try to speak into those relationships or situations from the vantage that we do have.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think we see this in marriage relationships, what is true in, in other relationships. What looks like a lack of effort is sometimes a lack of language. Mm-hmm. You, you have a person who is working hard to relate to another person, but they're doing it in their natural pathway, which is not very accessible to the person they're trying to relate with. So so the seven who wants to include the nine in let's go do everything, and, and the nine who instinctively says, that seems exhausting. And, and they're both working toward one another, but if I'm not speaking the language of the other, then I'm very unlikely to be able to connect with them in meaningful ways. And so this is where I think the Enneagram can be helpful. And, and without labeling, if I can understand that the, the person that I'm working with or relating to or living with or, or married to or whatever it might be in that relationship, if, if I can understand where they come from, I have a much better chance of learning some of their language and doing the process of translation, which is to take my natural stuff and be able to convert it into something that they can access, that they can understand. And when that happens, then we, then we have the possibility of genuine and, and true connection.
0: I know that it's blending conversations at this point, but that's what I take one of the core meanings of this book, The Five Love Languages, to be. The idea that we all have natural pathways of communicating and desiring love. And just simply recognizing one of the biggest steps for, a lot, for most of us is just recognizing that other people's natural pathways are different from our own. And if you can admit that, if you can just pause and step back and say, oh, wait, there are other people's actions and words matter to them in ways that differ from me, that's now a permanent invitation for you to explore what their pathways are to ask questions, right? That, that's a key marker of how well you're doing in uh, reaching out and relating is your ability to step back and listen more than you speak because you're never going to break down walls. You're never going to get past misassumptions if you're not listening well to the other person.
1: Yeah, and to add to that complexity, what works in one relationship will be the exact opposite of what works in another you know, if you're relating to an eight, you, you're going to need to stand your ground. You're going to need to be somewhat forceful and, and not let the sort of natural force of their conviction push you around. If you try that with a two, you're very likely to stomp them and, and leave them feeling wounded or, or hurt by that approach. And so, uh, from a leadership perspective or a management perspective, it, it is, I think, helpful to begin to realize that there's more to relationship than just me being me and, and you being you. Th- there is this dynamic of learning how to best communicate with you, which may be different than the best way to communicate with mm-hmm. someone else. And um, that, that sounds manipulative and or it could be taken i guess as manipulative but i think at its best it's just an understanding for the complexity that is every single human person and uh, a map to use your language of how we might best navigate those differences to to find common ground
0: where i think the imagery matters here is I think there's a significant difference between a map and a tool. A tool is something you use to effect change that you want on a thing. And, and so to think of the Enneagram as a tool, I think is destructive to what the Enneagram is intended to be. It's not a tool that we use on people. And I, an example I give of that is when I was going to seminary, I was taking a pastoral care class, and in that class they taught several uh, listening tools several questioning tools several uh, emotional tools you know how's your breathing that kind of thing and i remember uh, that entire semester i didn't intend to but i turned my wife into a laboratory i mean i came home and was trying all of these questions and listening skills and i'll tell you this wives see through that (laughs) in a snap so my, I can't tell you how many times uh, Rochelle told me throughout the course of that semester, "Stop experimenting on me and listen, for heaven's sakes!" And that's that's me taking these things and using them as a tool on her, instead of me honestly, authentically seeking to know and be with her. And the difference mm-hmm. between that is is thin, and yet it's also huge. I, so, I think the the image of map is more helpful for me in the sense that it gives you a broad lay of the land but yet you have to respect the map you have to respect that okay we can't we're not going to be able to pass over that river right there we're going to have to go down here because we just have to respect the lay of the land that there's there's something inherent in recognizing that the other is a person and that our only way to really relate to them is to honor that is to once again that we're to empathize with them The moment that you start using the Enneagram to affect some desired end, something that you would like, I think now you're you're in a really uncomfortable and stretching place for what the Enneagram is intended to be.
1: Yeah, and I find the challenge of that, Michael, that it speaks to both sides of a relationship. You know, in other words, it is about understanding where the other person comes from and who they are and understanding that that may be different from the things you bring. But behind that, there is, uh, in in some ways, even the more difficult task of acknowledging your own tendencies that get in the way. You know, the, the one's tendency to be judgmental because they strive for perfection. If a one can claim that and say, you know, I know this about myself, that I judge others harshly because I judge myself so harshly. If if a one can acknowledge that on the front end, they free themselves up. They can at least um, they can release themselves from it to some extent by naming it, by claiming it. You know the the seven who says. I, I know about myself that my natural wiring is to avoid emotional stress and, and just get busy, just do something, schedule something, plan something. If, if we are able to, in theological language, confess that part of our brokenness, then we are much better able to manage it and, and hopefully keep it out of the way as we move into relationships with other people. So, so not only is the Enneagram a tool to help understand others, I, I think, again, it's a wonderful opportunity, I won't use the word tool, um, to manage some of the tendencies that we all bring that get in the way.
0: I think we're integrating some themes from other conversations here, Clint. And one of those themes, we talked about how the Enneagram can free you it can give you agency once you understand these things about yourself. And I think a very practical way that's been lived out in my own relationships is I have laughed at myself in a healthy way more in the last three months than I've ever laughed. Because I can see myself doing a thing. I sort of get, start spinning up and working up. And I'm like, oh, Michael, here you go again. And it, it's not self-deprecating. I, I, I'm able to laugh and say, yeah, look at me. I'm doing my thing. I'm doing it, I'm, I'm getting worked up, and here it is, and this is why. And that is freeing, actually, because it gives you agency to say, okay, I know if if you're a, uh, let's say that you're a six, and you find yourself just welling with anxiety, and you say, hey, you know what, I think we're going to be fine. All of our bases are covered right now. I think I'm just taking this to a level I shouldn't be. That actually can... Enable you to be vulnerable and connect in a relationship instead of getting snippy with someone, or instead of getting all tense and on edge, you can sort of laugh at what you're experiencing, and you can move on.
1: It's almost like having a conversation between two of yourselves, hmm. your natural, or, or maybe even your broken self, and your better, to use the words from the last few podcasts your integrated self. Mm-hmm. And so to allow your integrated self to speak into your disintegrated self is a helpful movement to, to say, oh yeah, I'm doing that thing that I do. I'm I, I'm some I've convinced myself that someone's mad at me because they didn't see me when they drove mm-hmm. by and didn't wave at me. And now by the time I have I've gotten home, I, I've spun up this whole thing about two weeks ago in the grocery store. Maybe I didn't, I wasn't nice to, you know, and, and, oh yeah, I know that I do that and I'm sure things are fine. And, and to be able to begin those broader conversations that take us outside of our instincts. You know, this is really in theological language, again, what we would call sanctification, the the process of becoming holy, or I think in this context, we could substitute the word whole, that the process of becoming holy a whole person, a, a, a faith-filled person. And I think those internal conversations can be extremely helpful.
0: Completely agree. And I think another aspect of that may be looking at the Enneagram as a diagnostic frame. In other words, r- relationally, and, and maybe there's not a more difficult time for people than the present moment. We've nearly been in social distancing and quarantine now for close to a a full month. And as we recognize the social stresses of that, both the missing people and having enough of the people that we've been stuck with, I think we find ourselves reaching some boiling points and maybe we blow up. And for some of us that may be blowing up in anger, for some of us that may be uh, going silent and starting to push people out. Uh, There's lots of self-deprecating, self-harm even um, in both significant and insignificant or smaller ways that that can happen. And I think what the Enneagram offers us in those relational spaces is why did I just lose it with that person? Why why did I uh, rash out with those words or why did I lash out in anger in that way? it can start giving you some tools to, to see where to start working on you because you are a critical component of us. Um, the only way to grow relationally is to recognize and take responsibility for your part. And I don't know what your experience has been, but generally when it comes to counseling relationships, one of the greatest struggles early on is to help both parties recognize that they have to take ownership for their part in the equation yeah. because we can never fix the other person we can only work on our internal things and i think people underestimate how big of a difference that makes
1: yeah i i think we're often tempted to define mutual problems as individual problems or relationship problems the idea that i'm fine so all of the fault Must be on the other side of the fence, and realistically, rationally, we know that isn't true. In other words, we know logically that if I think that, that's arrogance at the highest level. There's no way that I can really believe that I don't have any issues. That would be absurd. That would be idolatry. That would be well. There's, I mean, there's no end to the things you could call that. That that's ludicrous. But in the relationships, we often function that way. You know, well, I don't know what her problem is. I don't know what his problem is. Or, you know, they always do. And and so, again, that move toward mutuality and owning the things that are mine to own. Yes, I contributed to that. Or, you know, I I did that. Or or I didn't handle that well. Those things uh, can certainly be an opportunity for growth. Michael, let's talk practically for a minute. Um, in terms of just Enneagram pairings and this won't be comprehensive if you're if you're listening to this. We we not nor should we in a position to go through and say this this type should, you know, hang out with this type. But there are some mm-hmm. there are some pairings that make sense and there are probably some pairings that are difficult. And so if, if you're relating, if you're of a, let's say you're an eight and you're trying to relate seriously with another eight, th- that's mm-hmm. that's a relationship fraught with some opportunities for mm-hmm. conflict, right? Because you, you have two people whose tendency is to bow up, to not back down. Th- that's going to be, that's likely to be a tense relationship if, if both parties aren't pretty aware of their their natural tendencies
0: yeah i think that's true for every number that is multiplying if you have two eights that's the same for two fives two threes two nines Uh, in the case of the eights you might see that uh, creating a kind of friction or tension but i give you another example let's think of a five uh, someone who's more heady and in that sort of personal space let's say that two fives are together and they're a couple. The the temptation for them isn't going to be to get after each other, Clint. The temptation for them is going to be to shut out the entire world. They've got their people. They've got some stasis. They all got their books and their bookshelves. And their temptation is going to be magnified to keep everybody out. That's the same with threes. They're going to keep striving until both of them reach the upper echelons of whatever they think success is. That's true for your ones who are going to try to create perfect worlds and have to try and navigate when those perfects aren't the same. So whenever you've got someone who's living in the same vantage as you, it's going to create unique challenges.
1: Yeah. Particularly if you're not in in healthy spaces within your type. And realistically, we're always better off to be in relationship with anybody healthy. It it wouldn't matter what type they're in and we are less well-off being in relationship with anyone unhealthy and and largely that wouldn't matter now but then there are some pairings within the anagram that probably make sense right the 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 nine might benefit from hanging out with the seven that the nine who has a certain reluctance to Mm
0: -hmm.
1: be real active or engage could be very much drawn to the, the seven, the, the vibrant person, the active person. You know, the seven would have to be cautious in that because nines avoid like sevens do but in a different direction. But but a, that, that could be the kind of relationship that might be beneficial. Um, there are probably, probably others in that regard. You know, the um, sixes. would have a way of, say, balancing out the kind of unchecked optimism of, of, again, say a seven, potentially, or, um, you know, whereas a six and and a four, who both have a sort of negative lens, they'd have to be careful not to spin each other farther down that path.
0: Yeah, if you remember the integration Conversations, those lines of going to healthy, generally, the the number that your number goes to the healthy space is a marker of a good relational opportunity. Simply because that person already represents in their nature a thing that you are living into, and so if you're say a nine of uh, being relate in relationship with a three is really. You know, of course, there's exceptions to this, right? Just We're speaking in numbers. I mean, there's Absolutely. unhealthy relationships that, that don't matter what yeah. numbers, but, but a three's natural drive and positivity and optimism is a win for a nine. And so when, you're, when a nine's having a bad day, call that three and get their opinion because they're gonna be able to offer something that's helpful. So that number that lives on the positive side of integration, those are generally gonna be good fits.
1: Yeah, and I, I do think the caution we have to exercise perhaps there, Michael, is we have to understand that, that whatever our integration is, w- what healthy looks like for us
0: mm-hmm.
1: may not be healthy. So in other words, the, the one can't simply assume that all the sevens are healthy because that's where they go when they're healthy. The, the sevens are using those exact same traits that the one uses to be healthy as unhealthy traits. Mm-hmm. The the nine and the three, the, the nine could just say, well, I just need to do three things. And then all the threes must already be good because they already do three things. No, the threes do three things because they're not healthy. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I do think we have to be somewhat cautious to not idealize yep. where our line takes us because that's the starting point of their brokenness. For, for us, coming from a different type, it may look like progress, but it's the starting point for them. And, and again, the, the dynamics of the Enneagram, the complexity of it, um, doesn't make it easy, but I think it does help us.
0: This may or may not be a helpful frame, I hope it is. The Enneagram offers you a way of conceiving and understanding the natural dance of life and relationships Uh, that you use the word dynamic this we are always as humans in motion both healthy and unhealthy both in the uh, from the past to the future we're living in these arcs we're relating to other people and fundamentally i i do think the enneagram also teaches us in the other direction that one needs to be careful right when you are a nine and you're going in an unhealthy place, it may not be helpful for you at all to be reaching out to your forefriend who's in an unhealthy place. Mm -hmm. That's not gonna be good. uh, To recognize that that forefriend in a month may be the exact person that you need to call because they're in a healthy place. And so I think if anything, once again, instead of thinking of the Enneagram as a tool that you ask, how do I use this tool in my life? you recognize that the Enneagram is showing you a beautiful and complex mosaic of life. And it, on some level, explains why we get it wrong so often.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you, when you do orienteering, there's this process by which, even if you have a map and compass, it has to be oriented so that you can understand where you are on the map. In other words, having the map with no understanding of where you are on it is not very helpful because you have no sense of where to go. You, you may know the destination you want, but without the starting point, you're not going to be able to accurately plan a path. And there again, I think the Enneagram offers us some opportunity to locate ourselves. Where am I? And where do I want to go? And and what does the path there look like? And how do I bring my best self to others? Because if I can do that, then I encourage them in in some small way to become their best selves as well as as we meet in this middle space of wholeness and of relationship. I read a fascinating article recently. It was uh, written as a tribute to a, a married couple. They've been married. They're both in their 70s, been married a long time. And the article was by a younger couple who admired their marriage. And so the husband and wife, the younger husband and wife, decided that independently they were going to ask the older husband and wife the secret. And so the husband asked the husband, the wife asked the wife. They came back to compare answers. And they were a little surprised to learn that both of the older couple had given the exact same answer. And the answer was this. You have to remain vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And that is a wise word. Because vulnerable means I'm open to hear the truth. I admit that I have weaknesses. I'm willing to see them. I'm willing to work on them. I'm willing... To hear some of the difficult things that I'd rather not hear. Vulnerable means open, right? Unprotected. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to let down the fence that I build in whatever type is, the way that whatever my type is, builds it. And I'm going to allow a different truth than my own to come in and speak to me. And th- that's a that's a pretty good image.
0: I, I'm really grateful that you bring our attention to this idea of the wholeness in the center and I think that's a fitting sort of summary of this conversation is the fact that we have to recognize the danger when we sit down and talk about strengths and weaknesses and what the Enneagram has to teach us about relationships that the Enneagram has no interest in saying well, this number is paired with this number and that is not going to make it in the real world and so you guys should just throw in the towel. If you're in a relationally difficult spot, if you're in a challenging moment, the Enneagram is never going to say incompatible. Right. The Enneagram is going to say, fundamentally, we're all trying to move to the center. We're all trying to live into Jesus Christ who embodies all of these gifts. And so... It's absolutely essential that we recognize in this conversation that in the same way that you're moving target and, and your life will in so many ways be defined by your willingness to be vulnerable, that is the same for the people who we're closest to in our relationships. And we need to extend... Uh, how many times did Jesus uh, tell his disciples to forgive, right? Uh, it, we, there's no limit to the extent to which God seeks to give us grace. And as we are all working our way towards the center, we would be wise to extend that grace to ourselves and others.
1: Yeah, and I, I think, again, where the Enneagram helps is to understand that vulnerability to me may manifest itself in a different way than vulnerability does for you. I may naturally have abilities to be vulnerable in some ways that you don't. And, and vice versa, you're going to naturally have vulnerabilities that I don't. And when I can start there, when I can understand that my best self lives on the other side of dealing with the hardest things that the, the things that are hardest for me to deal with then I, I'm ready to take that journey. And at that point, incorporating other people, relating to other people, becomes a tremendous blessing. And I can then understand how to bring my best to others in the hopes of unlocking their best as well. Now, I think that's really the point. I mean, I think that's really the goal of our growth. Well, friends, we hope there's something in there for you to think about, something for you um, to to use as you process all this Enneagram stuff. We appreciate you joining us for the conversation. As always, comments, questions, email them, post them. Uh, We would love to have more conversation. We wish we were doing this with the ability to have discussion, but uh, we hope that there's something in this that will keep you thinking and interested in the Enneagram a little longer as we continue to try and unpack it.
0: Thanks again for joining us and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Pastor Talk podcast. See ya.
1: Take care.